If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Acts in chapter 3. We are continuing on in this series, and people might think, well, aren't you going to do a Mother's Day sermon? Well, I am, but in a different way. When we were, when I was reading through Acts chapter 3, Phil Ward and I were going over this section, and we were realizing the principles that are taught in here are ones that I wished I'd have learned earlier on as a dad, or I'd been taught to recognize as a parent. Things that mom many times do every day with their kids. Things that we can do in our neighborhood. We can do at our workplace, the marketplace, or just in our community. Principles that the early church was demonstrating that made such a difference in the lives of the people they were impacting. They were witnesses to his glory. In this story in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way up to the temple courts for the afternoon time of prayer when they encounter a man who, is there, who has been crippled from birth. He's never walked. He asked them for money, and what they gave him in return was a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Here's the way Luke records it in chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to it. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Let's pray together. Father, this is a, a passage that's very humbling for me and very encouraging. These ordinary and simple men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit were using everyday opportunities to be witnesses to your glory. The very same thing you want to do in me and in all of us, using everyday situations that arise to tell people that Jesus is alive. And I pray that by the way we live, by the way we respond, whether we're moms and dads demonstrating this in our homes, or whether we're out in our neighborhoods, whether in the workplace or the marketplace, or just living in the community, that we will recognize opportunities you create to be witnesses to your glory, that people will actually see you in us. And we'll thank you, God, for all that you'll show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Joseph Stoll, former president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, I believe he wrote a book a few years ago called um, Jesus Nation. And in it, he was telling about a time, it was six o'clock in the morning, he was out for a jog. Nearing the end of his run, he went by a Starbucks and he decided he was going to go in, get a latte for he and his wife who was waiting for him at home. He said the place just opened. He was in in the store and he was second in line the only two people in there but it was not to be a normal morning because there was a guy standing there with a New York Times in one hand and a $50 bill in the other hand he's waving them both and he's very intensely angry at the young man who was behind the counter you see he wanted to buy this New York Times but all he had was a $50 bill and the poor kid behind the counter didn't have enough change so he couldn't sell him the paper and he was reading him the riot act Joseph Stoll said I was standing there witnessing this and I suddenly realized this is an opportunity to reveal the glory of Jesus. So he spoke up and he said to the guy behind the counter, hey, uh, why don't you put his paper on my tab? I'll be happy to pay for it. And he said it immediately diffused the situation. The guy walked away saying, thanks a lot. All I have is yours, which did not include apparently the $50 bill he was holding in his hand. To my surprise, Joe Stoll said, when the barista handed me my coffee, he said, Mister, that was a really nice thing for you to do. This world would be a, a lot better place to live in if more people were like you. 
His comments caught me off guard, he said, and I knew that I should say something at that point that would point the glory upward to Jesus, but nothing came. So I made some self-deprecating remark and walked out haunted that I had missed a great opportunity to glorify God. As I was walking down the sidewalk, it came to me, I should have said, well, this world would not be a better place if it had more people like me. This world would be a better place if it had more people like Jesus. Because you see what I just did? Jesus taught me that. God every day gives us opportunities to let his glory shine. In little acts of kindness, sometimes just by being honest, maybe by being a little bit of a harder worker, maybe by the way we care for our home or talk to our kids. In everyday situations, God gives us opportunities to point the glory to Jesus. When we glorify God, we're magnifying him. We are demonstrating that we know him and we're making him known. He is glorified and seen in us in the way we live, in the way we love, and in the way we make a difference. And we can do this as moms and dads in our homes. We can do it out in the neighborhood. We can do it in the workplace or just by the way we're living in the community. You see, most people have not rejected Jesus. Most people have never really met him. And so living to be witnesses to his glory really means that we are living in such a way that when people meet us, they have a chance to meet Jesus. That's what made the testimony of these early believers so powerful. They were living their lives for the praise of his glory. And here in Acts 3, Luke gives us our first opportunity to see how Peter, John, and the others were doing this in an everyday event of going up to the Temple Mount for the required time of prayer, and they meet this guy that's been out there every day, as we learn in chapter four, for 40 years of his life. Now, there were three stated times for prayer in Judea, early in the morning, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and then again at sunset. People went up to the Temple Mount to be involved in these prayer times, and the crowds there were getting big, because you remember, with the preaching of Peter, 3,000 people came to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day, Luke tells us, they were meeting in the temple courts. This, this crowd is getting huge. There were also many, many people from the community coming up to witness what was going on there and to be there for these times of prayer. And so, as they had always done, they took this crippled man, crippled from birth, who had never walked, and they set him at the gate called Beautiful. And he was there begging for money. Now, almsgiving in Israel was a meritorious act. What that means is that people believed that if they gave alms to the poor at a significant time of worship, that they would get some brownie points with God for doing that. Well, the people knew that, and so when they had a disabled relative or someone who couldn't work, They'd put them out there by the temple gate. And they would give these people a chance to earn their merit from God by giving a gift to them. That's what this guy was doing there. So he's calling out. The people see him all the time. He's been there every day for his life. Most people know this guy. 
And he sees an opportunity when Peter and John are coming, so he reaches out and says, hey, how about some coins? But the one who saw the opportunity was Peter and John. And it says in verse 4, Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Here's this guy, crippled from birth, who everybody knew as the lame guy who can't walk, who's always begging at the gate when we come up to pray, and now they see him running around the temple, jumping and leaping and dancing like he's trying out for Dancing with the Stars. They, they're thinking, what in the world happened to this guy? It's the same guy. Well, the crowds come running over to him, and they hear the buzz. Peter and John did this. Peter and John did this. When Peter and John got word of it, they turned the glory right back to Jesus. Verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. People, we're not doing this. Jesus is doing it. You know the one you killed? The one that was buried? He's alive. He just healed this guy. And he wants to save you too. And we're witnesses of this. Peter and John and the early disciples were called to be witnesses to his glory. The same calling every mom and dad, every man and woman, every boy and girl has been given who follows Jesus. We are witnesses to his glory. God has called each of us to be witnesses to his glory. But how do you do it? You do it the same way these people did, by pointing people to put their faith in Jesus' name and by pointing them to put their faith in Jesus' word. We are witnesses to his glory when we point people to put their faith in Jesus' name. This is the way Luke wrote it in verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, I have a confession to make. On behalf of every pastor who does a wedding, our greatest fear is that you're going to forget the name of the bride and groom when you're doing a wedding. 
Now, it happened to me once, and I can assure you, you don't want to do it twice. It's not a good experience. So there's kind of an unwritten rule when you do a wedding. I don't care if you're marrying your daughter and your son-in-law, you write their names down in the book so you don't get nervous and space out. I was reading this piece by Edward Boland that was a leadership magazine, and he was talking about this very phenomenon, pastors who forget in the midst of a wedding ceremony. He was telling about a priest who was bragging a bit that he didn't need to write down the names, but sure enough, he got in the ceremony, he could not remember, and he called him the wrong name. Never want to do that. And so he's sharing this with his pastor, and his pastor says back to Ed Boland, oh, you think that's bad? Listen to this. He said, I was doing a wedding ceremony, and I'm right in the middle of the ceremony, and I realized I can't remember the groom's name. And I knew I couldn't fake it, and I didn't want to get it wrong, so I just stopped, and I leaned forward, and I said, is your name James or John? He said, my name is James. He said, thank you. And no sooner has he said that than the bride-to-be elbows her groom in the ribs and said, your name is John. (laughs) The The guy was so nervous, he didn't even know his own name. Now, you may be good with names, you may be bad with names, you may not even be able to remember your own name. But there is one name everybody needs to know and you don't want to ever forget. And that's the name Jesus. You see, the disciples left no doubt as to whose name had healed and saved this man. They said in verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see, by faith in Jesus' name. Faith, that conviction, that absolute trust, that belief that what you have just heard is true and you respond by acting on it. Faith in the name of Jesus. And notice in chapter three, verse six, Peter said, silver or gold I don't have, but what I, do I, what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk, now watch these details. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Now here's this guy, he's 40 years old, we learn later in chapter four. He's never walked. He can't. But suddenly, here comes along these guys, Peter and John. They may have all recognized him. He sat there every day. They went up to pray, but he probably didn't know them. Just faces in the crowd. But they're passing by, and he sees these guys. And they say, look at us. So he does, and he expects to get money. But what Peter and John say to him is, this is what I've got. In the name of Jesus, walk. Now, I don't know about you, But if you've never walked, you don't know who these guys are, and you're looking down seeing your crippled legs, most people are not going to shoot their right hand up to take hold of the guy that just told them to walk. You're thinking, I don't want to be embarrassed. What are you, nuts? I can't walk. But that's not what the guy did. It says Peter stuck out his hand, and the guy took it. And he stood up for the first time in his life. And don't miss the detail. When he believed enough to put out his hand, 
when he believed in the name that was just spoken to him, he took Peter by the hand, and when he stood, it says, instantly, then the man was healed of his infirmity. When the faith of this man in Jesus' name and the faith of these, dis these disciples in Jesus' name met together, this man was healed. Now, see, in Semitic usage, a name wasn't just an expression of a person's identity, as Harry's different than Tom or Sally's different than Mary. A name had meaning. It was chosen with significance. And a name generally either expressed the hopes or the full identity of the child that was being named. So when you put your faith in Jesus' name, you're putting your faith in everything that Jesus is. And that's significant. Do you remember when Joseph found out that Mary, his fiance, was pregnant and she's saying God did it? That was a little tough to swallow for him. So he's trying to figure out, what do I do? Do you remember Matthew 1, verse 21? An angel came to him that night and said, she will give birth to a son, Joseph. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Specific. You are to give him the name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation or the Lord saves. Joseph, your son that's going to be born to Mary, he's going to be the savior of the world. So I want you to name him Jesus that the Lord is salvation. That's who he is. When Peter and John were arrested later for healing this guy, they were witnesses to the glory of Jesus' name. We're going to get to this in chapter 4, but listen to this, Acts 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, they're standing before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, who arrested them, held them overnight, and they're trying them the next day. They have the authority to request the governor to kill these guys. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame or being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which he must be saved. This man you killed, the Lord is salvation, is now your salvation. And he's the one who saved this man. It's very interesting, verse 9, the word healed, and the, verse, or the word in verse 12 later on in salvation is the same word. The guy was healed physically, but he was saved because he put his faith in the name of Jesus. As Paul told the Romans, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's because when Paul was writing to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, verse 9, near the end of his life, this is what he wrote. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there is nobody who's ever lived on planet Earth, not now, not in the past, not ever, who's ever going to leave this planet and go to heaven or hell 
No one is leaving the planet without bowing down before God and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone on planet Earth is going to make that confession when they leave. You and I have the privilege of doing it now. We don't have to wait. We're out there already telling people, this Jesus is Lord. He's alive. I'm a witness of this. He lives in me. And I'm telling you, you put your faith in Jesus' name, and he will save you too. Because he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can. And when you and I do little random acts or seemingly random acts of kindness or generosity or honesty or whatever, and people notice that, you tell them, that isn't me. Jesus did that. He's alive. Because I wouldn't do that on my own normally. But Jesus is alive. I'm a witness to his glory. And not only to the glory of his name, but we are witnesses to his glory when we point people to put their faith in Jesus' word. Luke said in verse 17, Now fellow Israelites, recording what Peter was saying to the crowds, Fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. I was telling my son-in-law, Garrett, yesterday, uh, who's in the Air Force and a private pilot, um, I was telling him about a time I flew an airplane. And he kind of looked at me like, you flew an airplane? Uh, yeah. Uh, here's how it happened. I was living in Seattle. I was in my 20s. Never flown in a small plane before. I had a friend named Chuck. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and he owned a small plane. He was a pilot. He asked me, do you want to go up? I said, man, that'd be great. So we went out together. He took me up. We flew all over Seattle. Man, it was a blast. We got back. He said to me, how do you like it? I said, man, that was great. He said, you want to do it again? I said, wow, sure. So I think it was the next Saturday, I meet him at the airport. He does all his checkout stuff. We get in the plane. plane. He, he taxis out to the head of the runway. And he's talking to the tower, and the engines are running, and we're waiting for the clearance, and he leans over, and he says, you fly the plane today. I said, what? He said, you fly the plane today. I said, I, 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 don't, I, I'm, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to fly a plane. He goes, I know, but I do. So you do everything I tell you. And so he reaches down and he grabs the throttle thing. I said last hour he pulled it out. The real pilot said he pushed it in. I said, okay, I don't know what he was doing because I wasn't watching him. <laughs> he said, you see that line down the middle of the runway? He said, I'm going to increase the throttle here and I want you to go keep the plane centered on that line. I want you to steer with your feet. Don't touch the wheel. That doesn't do anything on the ground. Just 
Keep your feet on those rudders down there and keep us on that line. And I'm going to keep adding speed. And when I tell you, you reach up and grab that wheel and you pull gently and steadily back and we're going to go right up into the sky. And he didn't give me a chance to respond. He just shoves the thing in and we're zooming down the runway. <laughs> now, the first 100 yards or so must have been near security call in the tower because it was not pretty. It, was like, <laughs> it took me a minute to get the hang of this thing while he's increasing the speed and we're racing down the runway and I finally got it going and we're right down the middle and he goes, okay, now. So I start pulling back on that thing and we go right up in the air. It was amazing. And so he said, hold it there until I tell you. So I'm holding it there and he decreases the speed. He said, now bring the nose down a little and we leveled out. And then he kept telling me, okay, now I want you to go to the left. Here's how you do it. And we went to the left. I want you to go to the right. Here's how we do it. And pretty soon, a little while, he had me steering that thing all over the place. It was a blast. He wasn't even touching anything that I could see anyway. Anyway, <laughs> so we're, we're coming around back to the airport. He's telling me exactly what to do. And we start, he says, you see that runway out there? It was probably miles ahead of us. He said, I want you to line the plane up with that runway. So I'm steering the thing and lining it up. And we're getting closer to the airport. And he looks over and he said, I'll take it from here. <laughs> Smart man. He, he did not have a death wish, and that's what he would have got if he'd let me to try to land this thing. There is no way. But you see, one thing I noticed was I didn't know how to fly a plane. I had no idea. But he knew. And I can tell you, when that plane is racing down the runway and he's not touching anything over there except the throttle, and he's telling you, listen to what I tell you and you can do this, you are listening to him with a new intensity. You, you, you have an interest in every word he's saying because you don't want to miss anything. So it's like <laughs> the whole way. People, that's the way God wants us to live our lives with him. Because you see, our lives are running down a runway called life. And God's hand's on the throttle. You're not controlling the speed of this. And the fact of the matter is, we don't know how to live this life. Not the way God designed it to be. Can you imagine anything so stupid as if I told the pilot, I don't need to listen to you. I flew once, so let me take it from here. We'd both be in glory. Why do people today tell God, I don't need you. I don't need to listen to you. I know this thing called life. Their lives are running, racing down the runway. The wheels are coming off. They're Life is falling apart, and they don't get why they're going through that because they're not listening to God. They're trying to fly this thing on their own called life, and they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to do it. Well, the disciples got to a point where they're thinking, we're standing in front of all of these believers, thousands of them. They've known the Lord for a couple of days. They don't know how to do this thing. So how are we going to guide their life down the runway? they got to listen to everything Jesus tells them. That's how you do it. If you don't do that, he said in verse 23, you're going to get cut off. Cut off is the word for destroyed. You're going to be completely cut off from God and the life he's offering you because you're not listening to the word of his greatest prophet, Jesus. And then Peter tells him, in fact, if you had been listening to God's prophets before him, if you had been listening to God's word speaking through them, 
then you would have listened to Jesus because they were all talking about him. So he said, you remember Moses? You guys revere Moses and his teaching, but you ain't listening to Moses. Because if you'd listen to Moses, you'd know who Jesus was. Acts 3, verse 22. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. See, Moses is quoting from Deuteronomy, I mean, Peter's quoting from Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18, where God tells the people, God's going to raise up a prophet like me, and he's going to speak to you. He's going to be life itself. You need to listen to everything he's telling you. And that prophet is Jesus, which is why when Jesus confronted the masses, he said, why aren't you listening to Moses? He's speaking about me. John 5, verse 39, Jesus told the religious leaders and the crowds, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Verse 45, but, do not, but don't think that I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Peter got up and said, you know what? You guys pride yourselves on being followers of Moses, but you destroyed the very one Moses was talking about because you listened to what Moses was saying, but you didn't hear God's word. You didn't obey it. Not only that, all the prophets from Samuel on were speaking to you about Jesus. Verse 24, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Peter's quoting from 2 Samuel 7, where Samuel was used by God to speak to King David about his future descendant, who would be his son, God's son. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, when your days are over, Samuel says to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. God told David through the prophet Samuel that a king is going to come through your line who's going to reign forever. God's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to be known as the son of God. God sent the prophets to every king in David's line with the same message. And that message has been faithfully passed on to you, Peter tells these people. But you don't know this Jesus. In fact, you killed him because you're not listening to what God is saying. And if Moses wasn't enough and all the prophets weren't enough, then he said, and God spoke to you about Jesus through Abraham. Verse 25, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Peter is referring there to Genesis 22. You remember when Abraham was told to bring his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to execute him, to kill him as a sacrifice, and God stopped him in the midst of it? But God said, now I know you will obey everything I tell you. 
Genesis 22, verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will, bless, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Through your offspring. The word Hebrew, their word there is literally seed. Through your seed, meaning through your descendants. But it wasn't plural, it was singular. And that's significant because when Paul used that passage speaking to the Galatian church to help them to understand the role of Abraham's faith and how God would bless this covenant through him, when people believed. He said, Abraham was told that all the nations are gonna be blessed through your offspring, through your seed, and that seed is Jesus. Galatians 3, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So what Peter's telling them is, look, God's been always telling you who Jesus is. Moses told you. All the prophets told you. Even Abraham told you who he was. But the reason you're in this mess is because you're not listening to God. And when you don't listen to God, you get cut off from him. You're flying that plane on your own. That's why you crash. And Peter tells him, if you were listening to Jesus and putting your faith in his word, this is what would have happened. Verse 17, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. See, Peter told him, look, if you had been listening, or even if you listen now, you wouldn't be living in ignorance, resisting Jesus. You'd be listening to his word, obeying it, and glorifying him. You would repent and turn around from the way you're going, and you would turn back to God. You wouldn't be resisting Jesus. You'd be running after him. Your sins would be wiped out. Those sins that stand between you and God would be gone. And times of refreshing would come from the Lord. That word refreshing means relaxation, relief, or rest, but it's not just physical. Because Peter's telling him, if you were listening to everything Jesus said and believed what he told you, you would have entered his rest, his Sabbath rest. You would have rested from all your works and religion and efforts of what you're trying to do to be saved, and you would rest in Jesus' work that he accomplished at the cross when he died there to pay for your sins. What Peter's telling them is this, you crucified Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. When Jesus worked on the Sabbath day, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the rest. 
He's the one who is offering rest from your works by faith in him. And you crucified the one the prophets told you about, the one whom God sent. The Sabbath is not a day. The Sabbath rest of God is in a person, Jesus. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2, verse 16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. So people, when you point people to God's word, when you meet people in the home or in the community or in the workplace or wherever they are, and their lives are coming off the rails, they're like racing down a runway with no pilot. You don't ever have to be ashamed to point them back to this. Because you see, Jesus is the pilot. And this is the word that speaks of him. And when they put their faith in this and listen to him and obey what he says, he'll take hold of the controls. He'll start bringing you life the way it was meant to be. People, I am not the world's greatest witness. I love talking to people about Jesus. Um, I love using opportunities to be able to build relationships with unbelievers. I'm sharing this story with you real briefly because it's quick, but it will hopefully give you some hope as to how God does this when you're a witness to his glory. It's amazing what God does. He creates the opportunity. A few years ago, I had an 84 Oldsmobile Cutlass station wagon that had 100 and something thousand miles on it. It was leaking oil a little bit. It was the only car our family had, and it wasn't Terribly reliable for trips. It was great around town. The oil leak could easily have been fixed for $100 or $200. But I needed something that I could drive out of town with and trust. So I decided I was going to sell this car. I listed it in the papers back then, and I told them it had an oil leak and it would cost this much to fix it and all that. Anyway, to make a long story short, this kid, probably late teens, early 20s, somewhere on the other side of the bay, calls me up and asks about the car. And I said, this is it. This is what it's like. These are the miles. This is what, it's, what it would take to fix. He said, great, I want to see it. So he drives all the way out to Antioch. And I meet him with this car. We go through it. I show him where the leak is, how to fix it, and all that. And he says, great, I, I think this will work perfect for me. I said, okay, as long as you're driving local, I think it's great. You put a little more money into it, maybe, but it, it'll probably work for you. So he said, how much do you want for it? I said, well, they tell me it's worth about 1800 He said, well, would you take 1500 I said, well, what do you want to use it for? He said, well, I'm going to school, and I need a car I can use on my paper route. I need a car that can carry papers, and I can throw them out the window. And I said, oh, well, if it's a local route, this will probably work great for you. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll sell it to you for $1,500. So I'm filling out the paperwork, and I get down to the point with the price, and he stops me. He said, would you mind putting $100 in there that you sold it to me for $100? And I said, well, why do you want me to do that? He said, so I don't have to pay so much in tax. And I said, well, I really can't do that because it wouldn't be honest. I said, Is the, I said it's probably going to be about 90 to to $100 or something for the tax. Is that a problem? He goes, yeah. And I said, I'll tell you what. To keep this thing honest, I'll, I'll give you the money for your tax. You can just go down to DMV. I'll give you the money. You can pay your tax. It won't cost you anything. And he said, well, why would you do that? 
You see how God serves these up? And I simply said to him, well, um, I'm a Christian, and I don't own this car, and the money's not mine either. It's all Jesus' money. And I'm feeling right now like he wants me to give some more of it to you so you can pay your tax and be honest. The kid starts asking me questions about Jesus. And to make a long story short, he ended up praying with me right there in the front seat to receive Christ into his life. Now, people, I'm not sharing that with you because I did anything great. I just wanted to get in there, sell the car, get my money, and get out. That's all I had planned to do that day. The point of the thing is this. God is the one who creates those opportunities. If we're watching for them, if we're paying attention, those opportunities come up with your kids in your home when they see how you handle certain things, and it's different. They want to know, why do you do it that way, Mom? Why do you do it that way, Dad? There's opportunities to come up like that at your workplace, with your next-door neighbors, at the store, the restaurant you might eat in today, or just being out in the community. And when those opportunities arise and you do the right thing, sometimes people want to know why, and you tell them, you know what, you like that? That's great. Happy to do it, but it isn't me, honestly. Jesus did that. Because you see, on my own, I wouldn't do that. But he's teaching me to do that. And so I want you to see he's alive today. And I'm one of the witnesses to his glory. When we do that, God can work. Does everybody believe when we do this? No, they don't. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 4, Peter and John got arrested. See, the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection didn't like it. They were going around with this guy jumping and leaping, telling everybody, the risen Christ saved me because it was contradicting everything they taught. So they arrested him. They put him in jail. Where do you see the testimony they're going to give next week? It would blow your mind what they said. See, not everybody believes when you live like this. But it also said the number of those who believed grew to 5,000 people that day because Peter and John were witnesses to his glory. We never know how God's going to use this. All we got to do is have our eyes open to the opportunities. God creates them. And when we use those, when we point people to Jesus' name and point them to his word, we become witnesses to his glory.